Happy Christmas. This is Lives, and I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Welcome to this Christmas Day edition of Lives Radio Show and Podcast, which reflects back on some highlights from this past year's shows. During the year, I have spoken with clergy, entrepreneurs, ethicists, poets, artists, activists, musicians, and many, many more. It is impossible to capture the full spectrum of this past year's guests, so in this show, I'll focus on some highlights from a few that have inspired, provoked, and entertained me. Some of my conversations with guests this year were recorded virtually via Zoom. On occasion, the internet audio quality is inconsistent, though I hope nonetheless you enjoy the conversations. My conversation with Israel Green touched upon his discovery as an adult that he was adopted, and he recounts his search for his birth parents. Israel is a highly sought-after speaker, trainer, and coach with a focus on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Our conversation was recorded via Zoom and aired February 2nd. Here he is talking about a nagging sense of identity crisis as an adult and why he was driven to search for his biological family once he discovered he was adopted. I think by the time the adoption went through, I was almost five years old. I went through a couple of different homes. I was renamed Sherman. Um, Somehow I got the name baby boy Christopher Smith when I was born, which I discovered later on, and then Sherman. And then when my family finally got me, they nicknamed me Dobe. And and it's like, Jesus, no wonder I'm having this identity crisis here. I've been named about eight times. And, um, you know, at one point they're calling the dog's name and I'm showing up like, okay, hey, it's my sandwich there. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I didn't have an awareness of that and I didn't even know what it meant to be adopted. But I remember certain situations that presented themselves. Like one of my aunts, she says to me, boy, what nationality are you? And I'm like, okay, I can't, I can't even pronounce that word. You know, I giggled because it was a funny word. And then I went and go played and played in some dirt somewhere, you know? Um, But then as I got older, I'm like, okay, why would she say something so mean to me as a child? You know, and that, that's one of the, the things that I remember. Um, so finding the, the birth family um, later on in my life, about 25 years after I found out that I was adopted. So I was in my 30s when I discovered my birth family. For me, it's, it was about not feeling a sense of, you know, as I talk through this now, and it's like, Jesus, not feeling a sense of belonging, you know, and, and that's, Uh, not to play on what this is about, but that was there for me. And, you know, it just so happened that I happened to resemble my dad, you know, from a physical characteristic standpoint. And you, whenever you're searching for, you know, your birth family, you're searching for usually three main reasons. Um, One is you want to find out what your medical history is so that you can be aware of that. The other is you want to find someone that resembles you. That's not a coincidence. You know, who do I look like? Who, what traits do I take on? And then the third piece is you want to understand the why. What was, what was so bad at that time? What was wrong? More importantly, what was wrong with me that you didn't want me, that you would abandon me? And you want to be able to ask this, look at the person in the eye and ask those questions of 
Why did you not want me? Tell me, you know, I, I'm demanding answers here. So that's the piece that I was always chasing and, and trying to figure out and really just finding a place where I belonged and was able to sit down on that stool and be comfortable with these answers. Israel discovered that his biological mother had died before he had chance to meet her as an adult and to ask her the questions he had on his mind and in his heart. I asked how he was reconciling himself to that situation. Stuart, if I'm being fully transparent, I don't know that I fully have or am, to be honest with you. One of the, acti- one of the things that I did when I met them for the first time is that night after spending the day with my brother and my sister and meeting a family friend that we thought might have some answers, I went back and I wrote a letter to Betty. It basically was me introducing myself. And I said, hey, you might know me as baby boy Christopher Smith. And I said, I'm Israel Green. This is who I am. I'm your son. And I went through this list of questions on paper. And I addressed it like it was a letter and I signed it, you know, baby boy, Christopher Smith. And what I wanted to do was try to find a way to let go of those questions that I still carry with me, you know, the, the inadequacies of what I felt, even though it, it wasn't anything about me, but you still carry those things with you and on your shoulder as a burden once again. So I wrote this letter and we went to the cemetery and I just, folded it up and shoved it into the ground as far as I could close to um, where she's buried. And that was my way of trying to let go. Um, and it was like, what was so bad about me? Why didn't you want me? What was going on? All of these questions. And as I did that, that was my way of trying to let it go a little bit. Another piece that I've done is I've started writing a book that is on the shelf that I, it's been difficult to process And it's called Forgotten Sons, 40 Lessons for 40 Years is the working title. But it's about all the things that I wish I had learned that I'm able to now share with other young men who might not be in the best of situations growing up. Here are the life lessons. Here's a compass, if you will, on how to get to those destinations. How do you prepare yourself in business? How do you dress for success? How do you become, uh, and it's mainly for those individuals who even though my dad was bringing us up, we were still out in the streets, ripping and running the streets at 10 or 14 years old. And, you know, they say God watches over children and God watches over fools. And, you know, luckily I was blessed then to be a child and now I'm just a fool, I guess. And I'm trying to give some of what I learned back to those young men to help them avoid some of the pitfalls that I made. Other guests during the year recounted how childhood traumas had influenced their later lives. Chanda Chacon is the president and CEO of Omaha's Children's Hospital and Medical Center, and we spoke on June 22nd. Chacon shared how a traumatic car accident as a child influenced her life and stoked a passion to serve in the healthcare field. Let's listen to this excerpt from our conversation. For me, the most formative um, experience that happened when I was a child, which impacted my career, was um, when I was 11, I was in a car wreck then was shuttled around the medical system for a couple of years. Even being in the um, Dallas area, there was a children's hospital, but I never went there. Um, And I had really strong parents who were trying to be really good advocates, but it's a complicated system. And so that was really formative to me. 
um, deciding what I could and couldn't do in the world. That's why I got really involved in band, really creative, because I couldn't be in sports and do that kind of work. Um, and then uh, my brother went to college and I couldn't wait to get out of Texas, you know, couldn't wait to get there and then couldn't wait to leave. What did you enjoy doing as a child at age 11 that preceded the car accident? Yeah, so I was, I had always been um, in music. I had been in band prior to that and I loved that. But, you know, in around the time I was in the car wreck was in middle school and that's where I think you make a lot of decisions about what are you going to be involved in and what are you going to do? And having been in the car wreck and then subsequently I had a spinal fusion, it sort of forced me to make different decisions. And I just was raised with the philosophy that whatever you decide to do, aim to be the best in that. And so, you know, honestly, at the time, I didn't really think about what I wasn't going to be able to do. It was more about this is my new set of choices and I'm going to be the very best at what I could do. And so um, always active in band, always active in academics. It just became my focus areas. I wasn't um, sort of wooed away by other things that I could have been, become involved with. I've read you share this story with others and you've remarked that the pain was bad enough that you would have to spend a period of time using a wheelchair. Yes. Yeah. When I was in, in sixth grade, um, it was probably the first year I was in sort of shuttling around the medical system and I had really bad pain down my leg and in my back. So I couldn't really sit longer than 30 minutes or stand longer than 30 minutes. And so one of my friends who was a year younger than me would wheel me into the middle school in a wheelchair. And my mom remembers thinking like, how is this going to work? Right? Like, it's just such a formative time and kids can be hard on each other. And um, I was really petite, like very, I mean, I still, I'm still short, but I was really petite. I couldn't reach the top locker anyway, but um, that made, it just made it hard to, um, you know, be different. But I think I learned a lot from that. I had a really tight network of people who were supportive and helpful to me. Um, but it did give me a different perspective. I think it, at a really formative time, um, helped me know that being different was okay and that I could be just as powerful and just as influential. Um, but it certainly was a really, it was a really challenging time, not just for me, but for my family. You went to uh, Vanderbilt mm -hmm. and your field of study, you chose biology and Spanish. What were the motivations for you choosing those two areas? Yeah. So um, I was really good at science, and so that was um, something I enjoyed. I, I really loved it. Also, I knew early on because of this experience that I wanted to be involved in healthcare. I didn't know what that looked like, though. I, we're not great always at advertising what you can do in healthcare, other than you know being a physician or being a nurse. And I knew from my perspective of what I had experienced, I wanted to impact the system. Because it wasn't individuals that let me down. It was the system that was hard. And so I knew I wanted to do something in healthcare on the system, but I had no idea what that looked like. So I was, I was good at biology. I really enjoyed it. And uh, growing up in Texas, my dad told me, you need to know how to speak Spanish. And so 
I'm, I was a, I think I probably still am a rule follower, but I was a rule follower. He told me that and I'm like, okay, all right. So I um, chose to double major for that reason. Um, you know, for me, it was, it was challenging, but having kind of gotten through a challenge when I was really young, I didn't really see those things as impossible. I never really look at something as impossible. I look at it as okay, how are we going to solve this? How are we going to get through it? And so for me, it was, I'm here four years and I want to get as much out of this experience as I can. So um, that's why I double majored. I look back now and I'm like, what was I thinking? Like, that's a lot. Um, but it was, a, it was an awesome experience and gave me exposure to things I don't even know that I, I knew I needed. You know, when I was in undergrad, I lived in Spain for a summer and just being able to see different cultures and being outside of the U.S., like living there was so, oh, it was so amazing and such a great experience. I believe and I know to be true that my experience with my back surgery as a child and that experience in healthcare absolutely drove me to major in biology and major in Spanish, but I didn't really know what it meant at the time. You said that your husband is um, of Venezuelan heritage. There are obviously ethnic languages there, but but the lingua franca, as it were, is Spanish. And I, I'm just curious if you look back and think, well, of course you studied Spanish because it opened the door perhaps for your eventual relationship. Oh, gosh, that's – my husband would probably love to hear that, Stuart. I think, I think it's probably – you know, for me, it was really – I honestly was listening to my, my dad who said – this is going to be really important in the future. My parents were very good at thinking what it, what skills I needed, what I needed to be able to learn how to know how to do when I was an adult. I, I mean, I think about it now and I'm like, they were so gracious to do that because I, you know, I was raised in a time where um, I could have been told like, here's all the barriers for what you can and can't do. And instead they were like, here's all the things you need to know and learn and do so that you can be ready for all those opportunities. And so I think that was most of it, but it is certainly funny because I remember meeting my husband and he's like, I don't think you speak Spanish. It was hilarious. And then I started speaking Spanish. He's like, oh, okay, well, I guess you do. Um, but it, it definitely for me has opened, I, like I think a whole culture and a whole um, exposure to people that I probably wouldn't have had had I not gone down that pathway to major in Spanish. And, and being from Texas, it's just, it's just normal. Like it just feels a part of the culture and a part of um, who we are, especially when I lived in Houston for 14 years where that for me is just, it was a, it made it easier. I could tell what my parents were doing Um, being an adult and going, Oh, I can communicate to people and families in the elevator and help people get where they need to go. That, that feels now I'm like, Oh, I'm so glad my parents were so smart. I don't know. It makes, it feels like it's a gift to be able to do that for other people. Musician Mary Elizabeth Lawson is the heart and artist behind Mizon Jigs. We spoke in March about the inspiration and creativity behind her new album, Live from Culture House. She also played for us live in the studio. Here she is introducing one of the songs she performed for us. This song is called Red Hat. I wrote it, I started writing it in 20, I want to say 2019. And I was able to fully flush flush it out during the first two years of the pandemic that we're all in.
is a cowboy. He was a coward. He was a coward waiting all alone on a stool at the end of the bar. I wandered over to his shoulder, whispered in, Hey, you. Dave Maynell's encounter with illness took him in a creative direction to explore and make sense of that experience. Maynelli is an author and creative writing teacher. His short story collection, How to Be Lonely, tests the limits of the human condition and Albert Camus' so-called serious problem on whether life is worth living. His writing often delves into the American lower middle class and those living just below the veil of the American dream. Here is Menelli talking about the mystery of his illness and how that informed his writing, including the last story from his book, from which he reads an excerpt. Um, I had an illness in 2012. And uh, I was sure I was going to die. I um, thought I had leukemia or lymphoma or Hodgkin's. Um, was was diagnosed with it but they couldn't find it. Worked with Mayo, UNMC, doctor, cancer doctors at UNMC told me I was had to be lymphoma. It'll, it'll appear. So I basically had 
lymphoma without having lymphoma, you know, the symptoms. And I was very sick. I was in bed 20 hours a day or hospital or doctors on an IV just keeping me from screaming. Um, after about 12 or 13 months of not finding out what was wrong, they decided to try to treat me instead and said that, you know, this is a good thing that nothing's appeared by this point. You're not going to be cancerous. So I had mixed emotions back then. You, you find yourself disappointed. Leukemia is not showing up, which is wrong. But when you're that sick, you, you just want to know what it is. And I'd obviously gone through serious depression. I mean, when you wake up every morning and you, you you squint because you don't know what the pain is going to be like in your head or your body and all that. Um, it's hard. And then my kids had just started high school, and they just missed everything. Um, and they they would come home, and they'd lay in bed with me and tell me about things. And i try to get up for dinner every night, and uh, they'd tell me about stuff. And now i go back to bed, basically. It was a, it was a really tough couple of years. Um. It was basically just gone. I mean, those go, those two years were just wiped <laughs> from my life. Um, by the end of 2013, though, they, we had had some success in treating it, and uh, I find myself um, becoming more and more functional, although days were um, – we didn't know – I didn't know if it would be a good or bad day or if I would have a five-day bad run or what, what have you. I had a – dear friend who wanted me to go to see a psychic and um i didn't i didn't go see a psychic because you know they couldn't diagnose me this was early on and so uh i took the story to where i did go see a psychic but i also um you know good fiction jumps the truth and takes off somewhere else you know the other part is is did I think about death? I did. I, I didn't think about it specifically, though, as in, you know. But I did, I did think about, man, my family would be better off without me. I'm just a burden. Um, here, I, you know, my wife has to come home and then take me to the hospital or take me to the doctor and then pick me up cause I, so I'd be on an IV minerals all day and get myself together or whatever. Or the medical costs, you know. I mean, we, we went through everything because, you know, I, I left my job and then we start paying for insurance and then all that. So those thoughts were depressing and I, and I started having the thoughts of how Everything, everybody would be a lot happier if I was, wasn't around. So writing-wise, I started getting creative with it, thinking what are the different ways, and um, that turned into this story along with the psychic, which I had a really good time with writing. And um, He's basically in the process of deciding how he would, um, the serious question, which is whether he should live or die for his family's sake, but he's going to entertain his wife and his her friend and go see the psychic. But also because he has maybe maybe she will find out for him, you know. But the psychic isn't who he thinks. He you know he thinks he's going to go find some kind of witch looking smoke room thing and 
she's a gal in a reindeer sweater in the middle of summer or something like that. And, you know, he finds things like weird pictures on the wall and the cat litter box, you know, and a receipt from Walmart next to a receipt from the online psychic <laughs> store. So they have an interesting meeting. After he leaves, things happen that make him feel like he gets his answer. He wants her to tell him whether to kill himself, basically. This is a section from The Serious Question, the last story of the book from How to Be Lonely. Falling on your sword is dramatic, but how long would I be alive after thrusting it through? He didn't want to be writhing on the floor in extreme agony for an hour. Plus, one does have to find an actual sword, and that can't be easy. It must be extremely sharp, and it would be nice if it was clean for hygiene's sake. And truth be told, there is absolutely no way he has the courage or is crazy enough to stab himself in the heart with a knife or sword. Drew turns to see how many people are waiting behind him in line. They look at him with impatient looks. He motions to them in solidarity. They don't know he is sick. They can't tell his neck and head are buzzing and brewing another broiler in the back of his skull. Even the tests say he is healthy. When his friends come to see him, they always tell him how good he looks. He knows it's code for not being completely sure he is sick. He knows what they think. It must be mental. Drew gives Jamie credit for one thing. She isn't like his other friends who constantly send their poorly researched articles and rare diseases they come across. He knows they mean well, but it only depresses him more than it, than it helps. Lyme, lupus, Mediterranean glandular fever, metal poisoning, tooth rotting, arsenic, Oh, and F you and your Munchausen syndrome, Gary, you asshole. Don't think I don't look these up. I'm not pretending. They send him diets and miracle medicines, and they placidly shake their heads when he answers that he has not yet tried the horsehair and pig testicle smoothie diet, or that he hasn't swung over to Bad Sackens in Germany to get that treatment they read about in People magazine. I'm telling you, they say to him, it has really helped this person I know. This gal I work with, Mary Beth, is running marathons now. She could barely walk a year before. And now, fucking marathons. God damn it, Mary Beth. Why couldn't you have just died? Drowning is totally out of the question. Burning is also unacceptable. A car crash frightens him. Plus, others could get hurt. And there's no good cliffs in the Midwest to suddenly spill off of. Sitting in a car sucking carbon monoxide with the garage door closed would be painless, but would be hard to make look like an accident for the insurance company. There's something about the monoxide choice that seems less respectable to Drew, with no intended offense to those who have successfully or unsuccessfully used the method for that matter. But again, it is important for him to have some dignity in his departure. For instance, shitting himself and falling off the toilet with his briefs around his ankles like Elvis went has always been something of a phobia for him, even before he was sick. He went ahead and named this fear Elvis has left the building phobia. He would rather much rather he would much rather die hang gliding over the Grand Canyon like a superhero whose powers suddenly left him due to a solar flare. Too bad he has also been massively debilitated by a fear of heights. Drew made a list of his intentions for when he dies. He hid them in the top drawer of his desk in a manila envelope where they would be easy to find. 1. Cremate me. 2. Mix some of the ashes in two large fireworks. Must be two, to be lit at the same time. Light them exactly at 11.11 p.m. the night of my show. 
Scene number three. Three. There is a CD in the envelope played at my show memorial. Songs to include, one, The End by The Doors. Two, Spirit in the Sky by Norman Greenbaum for the kids. Three, Staying Alive by The Bee Gees for laughs. Four, The Final Countdown by Europe, more laughs. Five, Come On Eileen, Guilty Pleasure Song. Six, Hey Joe by Johnny Halliday in French to piss off Bill Summers, who always hated this version. The idea behind having two fireworks comes from Drew's distress of one being a dud. It angers him every time he thinks about it, not exploding, and all those assholes from where he worked before had to resign, including Bill Summers flapping about it afterward at the bar or work the next day. Yep, just like his life. What a dud. And I'll end there. Adam Garrow, who performs as Adam Soul Music, is an award-winning artist, playing over 12 instruments, including the harp, ukulele, guitar, and various forms of African percussion, Adam also sings in English as well as in her native tongue called Gar, originating from the Gar tribe of Ghana in West Africa. In our conversation that aired July 17th, Adam talked about her experiences as a first-generation immigrant confronting the pressures of assimilation and how these experiences have inspired her work. Adam also performed for us live in the studio. Here's one of her songs. So this song I'm going to sing for you is called True Nature. I think the song in its own way is very self-explanatory. This is one of those songs that I wrote (laughs) just kind of like on the spot, but I felt like it definitely has some um, profound notes, like how we perceive ourselves and then what's the truth. You say your heart's an open door But you show me otherwise You say your heart's an open door But you, oh, you show me otherwise Give man the right to wisdom You speak with your lips You say give man the right to wisdom But is man ready for it? Are you ready for it? Uh, So let the seasons come So we can look back at what we've done Yes, we'll go but with time we'll see the true nature of our souls of our souls of our souls yeah 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 A butterfly flows through this life while an eagle soars high above the clouds. Like butterflies, we flow through this life, yeah, like eagles. We only want one thing, and that's to soar. That's to soar. That's the soul, soul, yeah.
let the seasons come so we can look back at what we've done yes we'll grow but with time we'll see the true nature of our with hip-hop artist Marty Yates in October when he talked about the founding of Culture House as a creative community hub, especially during the 2020 protests in Omaha after the deaths of George Floyd and James Scurlock. Yates also shared with us his journey as a musical artist. In these two excerpts from our conversation, Yates first shares the influence church music had on his work, and then he responds to my asking him how his music has evolved. So I think, like, just taking the feel of church music the gospel i've always like felt it to like my soul right like soul music so i think that when i was introduced to hip-hop those are the kind of elements that attracted me in certain particular productions not necessarily the lyrics but productions i was attracted to the production more than lyrics like even to this day like i could listen to a song a hundred times you know the cadence of the beat you know the drops um you know the structure but not remember the lyrics of the song so when I got into doing the music that I was going to, to do, I would kind of pull from those elements, I think, that, you know, came from church, the, the part that make me really feel, you know, that really kind of hits the soul. Um, that's why I think, like, you know, the music that I do make live, it, like, it's soulful, but you can really can feel it. You know what I mean? You know, I think I'm at um, a space where I want to catch people up to me, Right. You know, I have, a, I have a journey, but, you know, one song can't tell my story and one conversation can't either. I'm interested in how I am displaying the art, you know, not so much just like, OK, music's out, like stream it. How am I presenting it? Each track can be broken down into just a, a song. There's, there's artwork with it. Right. There's visual video. Um, there's lyrics. So type font, you know, and then you have the, the sound. 
So for me, I want to, you know, continue to explore the possibilities. When you first start off, like, and you're like hungry and you're talking about like other things, you're like trying to tell people what you're going through to like, to get there, you know, the hunger, the hunger raps and stuff. But Stuart, I've, I've put out like 12 projects, man. Right. You know, I've started businesses. I've like done a lot of different things. So for me, it's, it's more interesting now where I can look back and be like, oh, if you go from my first record until like now, like you can actually like listen to the, the rise. You know what I mean? So I'm more the music I'm put on now, like it puts everything in context. So the, the, the new project I'm going to put out, you know, puts everything in context. It, it makes my previous work make more sense. This is a track called Freefall that Marcier's created and shared with us which features collaborators Zoboy, a.k.a. Donald Profound, and Beautiful Day. Tell me yes, son. Check it. Uh. Yeah. Tell me yes, son. Tell me yes, son. Tell me yes, son. Yeah. Checker, uh, I missed it. Turn me up one time, listen to different features. Rhyme keepers, saw so men of different sneakers. Came a long way from gaming a whole scene up. Raleigh Science Project major, nothing between us. Nice today, get it out the way. Tomorrow ain't promise, I give a gift away. Stay on point, take a loss, sound, lose much. Keep my family tight, my 85 got a new clutch. Uh, one time if you feel as though. And one time for my, yo. One time for the homies that get out One time for the catches that be running routes uh, Hear my thoughts, I like to take a few Thank God I ain't a hate a few Play y'all, so I'm gon' play ball Shake this shit up like the Lakers when I play y'all Keep it tight though Everybody want that night, yo Can't complain, I like the night glow Without permission, take a nice stroll Kings and queens, skies and ground Age is a royalty without a crown Loyalty known around the globe And our fables told, round tables made of gold Said the days are new with the nights of old It seems divine with me and mine's like Me, I'm fine, how are you and yours? A few hours past noon and the moon absorbs Truth ignored through a filter stand and administer that bland elixir name brand liquor quicker intravenous figure out a method to the madness of a genius riddle to enigma quandary to conundrum signals and insignia symptoms of insomnia the secrets of inertia resistance pushes further funny the louder we get that they ain't hurt us free for a and i just might not let safe on solid ground hope it don't take our night please don't and time while I free for a and I just might not land safe on solid ground hope it don't take our night please don't waste my space and time while I free for a and I just might not land safe on solid ground hope it don't take our night please don't waste my space and time while I free for a and I just might not turning to the visual arts on July 3rd I spoke with the Joslin Art Museum's contemporary art curator, Karen Campbell. Since joining the museum in 2012, Campbell has curated several major exhibitions, including 30 Americans, Word, Play, Prints, Photographs and Paintings by Ed Ruscha, and Sheila Hicks, Material Voices. In the show, Campbell shared her first memorable encounters with art, 
her role as a curator in catalyzing public conversation, and the place of contemporary art in society today. Here in these two excerpts, she talks about what makes contemporary art important to society today and the role of the audience in completing art. Contemporary art is meant to reflect the current moment. For me, the best contemporary art has a sense of urgency attached to it, especially in times of national crisis. And this has really, really been on my mind the last couple of weeks, especially this week with the massacre at Robb Elementary in Texas, that you know, on one hand, that is a political issue because we can dive into Second Amendment rights and the ineptitude of our government to do anything in the wake of these crises. But then there's also the response to that from the cultural standpoint. Audiences come to the table to complete art. Art sitting on a wall by itself is just a thing, but with the world around it becomes something else entirely and is sort of brought to life and is brought to life many times with each person who looks at it and engages it and thinks about it. The idea of being a curator and wanting to also deal with audiences was is something newer. Um, and I think that there's great power and potential in that. Campbell not only talked about the role of contemporary art generally, but in this excerpt, she shares a moment reflecting the emotional impact it has had in her own life. Um, my mother has late stage cancer. I was on a business trip to Los Angeles and we'd gotten some very bad news. She's doing okay right now, I'm pleased to say, but uh, this was the early stages and we were learning a lot of things. But I decided that my next stop had to be Los Angeles Museum of Contemporary Art, where they have, and I knew this, a room full of Mark Rothko paintings. For a person who uh, my expertise is contemporary, nothing will force me onto my knees like a room full of Mark Rothko. I have a religious experience with it. The room was empty. It was just me for some reason. And I sat on a bench in that room for at least an hour, just letting the paintings consume me. And I cried, like not going in intending to feel emotional, but what I thought was going to be catharsis and ended up ripping open a gaping hole in my heart. <laughs> But just to be surrounded by the immense quiet of something like a Mark Rothko painting, in this case, like 10 of them, was really moving. The emotional impact of our lived experiences and how they shape us was remarked upon by my guest, Meredith Fuller. In our recent conversation, Fuller talked about the physical and spiritual experience of walking the historic European pilgrimage route, the Camino de Santiago, or the Way of St. James, which Pope Alexander VI declared to be one of the three great pilgrimages of Christendom. I asked Fuller how she was thinking about the spiritual aspect of the endeavor. To be truly honest, I think I can't fully articulate it. It's a feeling um, that arises when you're walking, especially if you keep walking. If you walk a lot of every day, we average 10 miles, sometimes 15, sometimes 6. Um, and we walked every day for for eight days, but then there were two more days at the end. I think that there's a sense of being present, which as a Buddhist, I have felt in meditational practices. And there is a tradition of walking meditation in Zen Buddhism and in Tibetan Buddhism. However, um, I think that with time, walking requires mindfulness. You could say, that city meditation cultivates mindfulness. But the secret which most meditators know is that when you come back and realize you've been spaced out, you just at that moment wake up. You're not aware you're spaced out when you're spaced out is when you come back. When you're walking, you have to pay attention to where you put your foot. You have to pay attention to whether your 
pole is getting caught in a rabbit hole. You have to watch out for rocks. Um, you have to pay attention to the signage, what is called balisage in France. Um, there's a embodiment, which to me is the essence of what becomes the mystical experience may sound paradoxical, but the more I think you have to be in your body and be present and, and in nature, which you don't own, you know, in this larger world of weather and changing terrains and so on, I think something happens, something happens with your mind body connection. And I would call that joy, which doesn't mean there isn't discomfort. I've never had eight days of such sustained joy. Given that expression of joyfulness, I asked Fuller how she was a different person today than she was before, and if she had clarity around her sense of purpose. Mm. Well, I think I feel a little braver about some of what I believe, and I think that my kind of spirituality can have such a pretentious sound, but I'll, I'll just have to use it. I think the fundamentals of my spirituality are a sacred view of the world, that the entire world is sacred. It's not that we are at the top of a hierarchy and, and more important than um, all the other creatures and beings on this earth. And so I feel that the walk gave me a much deeper sense of how important it is to not only our well-being, but probably to our capacity for compassion and addressing serious challenges of not caring for our world, if we are outside in nature and moving through the landscape and running into people and places that, um, so I feel uh, more convinced of the sacredness of the world, how if we disconnect from nature, we are probably going to view the world as a commodity, including our vacations. It's sort of something we get to have. Uh, and that the land is something that does stuff for us. It grows us food. Um, and so I feel that I am even clearer that the land, the air, the water is not a commodity. Um, and I want to keep walking. Um, I'm trying to slow down, which I've always tried to do, but this practice of walking for days helps you with that because when you're tired, your body slows down. And that's actually kind of a good thing. So now the challenge at home is I'm practicing to try to just move around in the space of my home more slowly. Um, be more aware that someone else is in the space. It's, it's, it's not, um, I don't want to overplay it, but there's just quiet ways in which I'm just trying to bring more mindfulness to my daily life and definitely um, getting out, outside as much as I can. Oh, one other thing. Because of this feeling that is eerie, and I can't fully, of course, explain, the sense that people who have walked in the landscape before us made that place different. I do feel more curious about that and aware of that. There's just a sense of deep time that I feel more in touch with, and I feel more a sense of being in a lineage, even if it's not a lineage of people on the Shaman that there's a, a people, you know, of being a species that has evolved a long time across landscapes and in response to landscapes and been shaped by landscapes. And I think it, it puts you in a different relationship to the world. On the one hand, I'm, I feel a clarity about right now what my purpose is I, I, in terms of uh, it's to be close to the people I love, to be with them, 
and it's to write and it's to enjoy the things I deeply enjoy, such as cooking and eating in beautiful restaurants that we have here in Omaha. I, I have a sense of immediate purpose. Um, and, um, another word, the day's walk. Farther out the next day and the next day and the next day, I think my purpose is to be open to not knowing and seeing what arises. You know, we have a midterm election coming up, which is a big deal for many people. And I'm a very aware between that and many um, instabilities in the world and the, inst- the you could say the inherent instability that goes with aging, that some anything could happen and we would need to be light on our feet, may I say, you know, that you could actually, when you start to fall, catch yourself and redirect. So I hope that my sense of, um, my sense of purpose is a little open-ended. Airing on Christmas Day, This show features some particular 2022 highlights drawn from the worlds of culture, business, ethics, education, faith, and more. It is impossible to hear again from every one of the many diverse guests. So for all the 2022 shows you've missed, head over to the podcast at livesradioshow.com. Listen out for more compelling conversations in the coming year, including artist and sculptor, Catherine Ferguson, the executive director of the Malcolm X Memorial Foundation, Joanna LaFleur Ejiki. And leading us off on next week's New Year's Day show, my guest is divorce attorney, executive coach, and end-of-life doula, Susan Koenig. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Merry Christmas and happy holidays to you all. Thanks for listening. Thank you.